boy, oh boy, what do we have going on today? <laughs> um, I'm, Not going to bury the lead, huh? No, I'm so excited. So Noam Chomsky, I mean, Noam Chomsky, we're going to talk to him today. Um, I got to say, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. I don't get nervous often, but I'm nervous. Really? Yeah. I mean, you know, this is a guy who basically one of my idols, one of my intellectual heroes for sure. Um, and he would probably be mortified to have me say that because I'm a guy who makes fart noises. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he sees you as much more than that, Kyle, as we all do. I don't see myself as much more than that, so I don't know <laughs> why, why he would. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so obviously there's a million things I could say. Um, I mean, what I want to do is I want to tell you the story of the first time I actually interacted with him. And a lot of people have a similar story because apparently he answers emails from everybody. Yes. Like, incredible. Incredible. All day he'll sit there and respond to emails from random people across the country, across the world. And that alone puts him in like, you know, a league of his own. Because I don't know anybody else who does that. That makes me actually, it makes me feel a little bit guilty. Oh, I do I'm the, the biggest piece of shit on the planet. I, mean, I don't answer anything. Well, and the reason personally that I've come to not really respond is frankly because I'm thin-skinned. And like, I can't handle the possibility that there may be like super negative shit in there. So I just sort of like wall myself off from all of it. Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm the same as you. Um, I don't know if that's the reason why I do it. I, I think I don't do it because um, it's, it's, it is like, it sounds weird to say, but it's almost like emotional taxation. If you, the more people you invite in your life mm. and the more people you're interacting with on a regular basis, it's like you develop relationships and then you care about them. They care about you. And it's like, you can only max out at a certain number. Yeah. And once you hit a certain point of being known, everybody wants to be one of the people in your inner circle. Right. So it's almost like, you know, if you just build the wall up and say, listen, everybody who was here beforehand is is good, but anybody yeah. who's post, it's like, I can't, I just can't do it. I don't have the mental space for it. I'm, so anyway, yeah. oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, I've just come to realize about myself after having been somewhat in the public sphere for a decade now yeah, that, mm -hmm. like, I'm not developing a thick skin. Like, I'm a sensitive person. Right, sure. Like, it just mm -hmm. is what it is. So I always admire people who can take all of that mm -hmm. and, like, still be responsive to it. Yes. It's not because I don't appreciate and love you guys. It's my own. It's my own shit. That's why. Yeah. Well, I'm a well-known non-reader of, like, <laughs> of DM, <laughs> and DMs, DMs and, 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 and tweets. And because, yeah. you know, what happens, is, it is human nature, I think, that, like, you'll go through and it'll be, like, a bunch of great things. And then one will be, like... I didn't like this. And you're like, fucking everybody uh, doesn't like me. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. the one that you'll remember like till the day you die. Of course. And the million very nice things that people say just go right in that's one right. ear and out the other. But anyway. Yes. So the Chomsky story. Chomsky. So I was a college student and I w this was before I actually decided to major in political science. It was when I was more interested in psychology than political science. And uh, I remember I was in one of my psychology classes and the professor was giving a lecture and basically somebody in the class asked like what do you think drives humans more is it nature or is it nurture mm. and the answer from the professor was i think it's mostly nature and nurture pokes at it mm. now in my mind at the time that was like heresy because uh, first of all i'm a know-it-all college kid i'm a know-it-all adult now but i was a know-it-all <laughs> college kid at the time and like i was on this kick of like no everything is nurture because all everything is societal convention. You know, if there's if biology points you in one direction or another direction, you could fucking override it. You could teach it out of yourself. You know, mm. you could basically human beings are like a lump of clay and you can mold them into whatever the hell you want to mold them into. And if you think about it, that's a very it's a very convenient belief if you're a lefty. 
Yeah. Because then you think we can create the most egalitarian society imaginable and there are no hurdles whatsoever because human beings are infinitely malleable. So anyway, the teacher said this. I emailed Noam Chomsky that night. I don't even remember how I got his email. I think another professor who was a big time lefty, I asked him and he gave it to me or something. Hmm. And I emailed him and I said, hey, here's what the professor said. Do you think this is true? And so I was asking about the nature versus nurture question. And his response, I'll never forget, because it's, it's in some ways, it's classic Chomsky because it's like so obviously true, but also super direct and simple. He was like, I never understood the debate because obviously both nature and nurture play a role. Yeah. Well, for me, um, on that specific question, having three kids, like... You really do see in real time, my kids, each one of them is so dramatically different. And mm. I think at least that I did more or less the same thing right, yeah. with all of them. But their personalities, the things they excel at, the things they're into, their like whole attitude and approach, just polar opposite ends of the spectrum. And same thing actually with me and my um, two sisters as well. There's three mm. of us as well. And I see the same thing. Like one sister is very clearly takes after my mom personality wise. The other one takes very clearly after my dad personality wise. And I'm sort of like a mix between the two. But I do feel like when you're a parent, it becomes harder to deny that there is a very strong Biological. nature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. element to that. And look, nurture obviously plays a significant role mm -hmm. too, especially if you have something like some sort of traumatic experience yes. or something like that that comes into your life or the circumstances that you're shaped by, whether it's poverty or whether it's some other sort of acute um, instant trauma. But I do think that being a parent, seeing the way that kids are like you cannot deny that nature is 100% a very real and very significant thing. Yeah, so funny enough, the position I've come to is actually close to what the professor said. Mm. Like, I sort of agree with the professor's position of, like, it's mostly nature and nurture pokes at it. But overall, I do think I take a kind of a Chomsky view where I look at it and say, some things are nature, some things are nurture, some things are a mix of both nature and nurture. Yeah. And the world is messy and complex, and you have to discuss it on, like, a case-by-case -case basis. There is no clean answer. There's no clean answer. Right, exactly. But anyway, like, that that was uh, that was the—and he responded to me, like, within the day. Was he one of the people—remember how Barack Obama said that he was, like, reading, like, Marx or something to try to get girls in college? Was Chomsky one of the people that he cited That's that he was, question. like, I don't pretending remember. to be into to try to get laid in college? I know the story <laughs> you're talking about because I covered it, but I don't remember if it was Chomsky. But that that wasn't was. your same motivation? No, see, it's funny <laughs> Funny enough, when I covered that story of Obama saying that, I was yeah. actually, like, sort of pissed off at Obama because, <laughs> because what I— in my opinion, like the whole like reading Chomsky or listening to his lectures and stuff like that was the escape from all of the normal college bullshit of like mm -hmm. caring about what other people think of you and wanting to get laid. Like all that stuff was like, fuck, this is the stuff I have to deal with as like a typical horny teenager who's, you know, the world is coming at me at a thousand miles an hour. No pun intended coming at me when I say that. Um, <laughs> and I always went to like Chomsky and at the time Bill Maher, even though now, right. But at the time I would, you know, watch Bill Maher yeah. stuff. But and he's, he's deteriorated massively in his political opinions. But like when I would listen to a Chomsky lecture, read a Chomsky book, it would be like the purifying experience of like getting all the bullshit out of my mind and yeah. focusing on like interesting intellectual pursuits that I had a genuine interest in. And especially when it comes to Chomsky, one of the reasons why I say he's like the biggest intellectual influence on me is that when I started watching his stuff on foreign policy, he would he would, you know, give these interviews to some media outlets that nobody's ever heard of. And he, he would 
just blow your mind with the stuff he says on foreign policy where i never forget there was a good comment i read about chomsky one time somebody said he'll take you from being a wishy-washy centrist into a hardcore leftist anti-imperialist yeah and he'll do it in one book you read one chomsky book and you're like well that's it for me well i didn't know dick about dick (laughs) now i know dick about dick yeah completely fearless person and it's a great week to talk to him as well i mean there are a million things that are happening one of them that just happened today is the senate has actually started the budget reconciliation process and like you know they had the initial vote to begin that budget reconciliation process to pass biden's 1.9 trillion dollar deal and it's like you know it's one of those things where depending on how you look at it, you can feel a whole lot of different ways. Like on the one hand, I remember you made this point when we were getting all the list of Biden cabinet appointments. They would play this game. It was a very effective strategy of they'd be like, we're going to give you this really terrible people. Like, let's Rahm just Emanuel? Rahm yeah. Emanuel for something. <laughs> or like, you guys know we're still talking to Larry Summers, right? And then they'd pick someone who was somewhat less offensive, but still not good. And everybody would be like, oh my God, thank God. This is amazing. Like, we'll take it. And I sort of feel like we've gotten played that same way with this stimulus deal because, look, it's inadequate. I mean, Mm -hmm. just on its face, like what the initial proposal, $1.9 trillion proposal was, is inadequate to deal both with this moment and to deal with the longer term structural issues that brought us to this place and brought us Donald Trump and all of that stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And yet. They floated this idea of, actually, we're going to try to do it with the Republicans through regular process. So So people like you and me, understandably, are like, oh, my God, like, you can't do that. Then you're going to get nothing. Nothing. You're literally going to get nothing. So then when they go forward with what is, whoa, almost messed that one up. It's okay. When they go forward with the inadequate proposal through budget reconciliation, which, by the way, they are still pulling good things out of and negotiating themselves down on, we still feel a sense of relief that, like, well, at least they're doing at least something. They're, at least yeah. they're doing something. And I don't want to downplay it either. Like, there's really significant good things that are going to help a lot of people. But... The type of program that Bernie Sanders laid out mm-hmm. of, hey, we could have universal he- child care. Mm-hmm. We could have universal health care. We could have universal pre-K through this budget mm-hmm. reconciliation process. Or we can have recurring monthly checks instead of 2000 that became 1400 that got means tested, that's now getting means tested further down to mm-hmm. go to tens of millions of fewer people. Like we could have $2,000 monthly recurring checks. None of that was even remotely in the realm of possibility, let alone also the student debt cancellation that a lot of people have been fighting for. Yeah. So I want to give you I'll give you the good side and the bad side. Okay. The good side is Biden gets it objectively more than Obama did in 2009. That's just a stone cold fact at this point, because he's on the record now as saying, like, hey, if they don't if the Republicans aren't going to work with us then we're going to go through reconciliation and you can go fuck yourself. Yep. Basically, that's what he's saying, right? Whereas Obama was like... We really need you guys. Pretty please, I want to be bipartisan because bipartisan is good. (laughs) (laughs) And Biden's like, all right, I tried. I tried for, you know, a week through regular order. I'm not getting anywhere, so step the fuck aside. And that's what he's doing. So the good news is Biden gets that. But the bad news is, and this... This we could have predicted this. The bad news is, mansion gonna mansion, and so unless you are being super aggressive and like noting 
Joe Manchin is my enemy, and I will treat him as such. Do you want to be my best friend, or do you want to be my enemy? If you want to be my best friend, I, Joe Biden, who now has a 60% approval rating because I just got elected president, I will, I'll make sure you win your next election. I'll go down there and campaign for you. I'll be your best friend if you want me to be your best friend. But here's what you have to do for me. You have to vote for this, this, and this. Now, or if you want to stand in the way, you're public enemy number one, and I will crush you even worse than I want to crush Republicans. How do you like them apples? Yeah. That's how you have to approach it. So Biden gets the first part. Regular order is a waste of time. Bipartisanship is not going to work in this instance because he's already on the record of saying they already said no. What do you want me to do? I'm doing reconciliation. But but if Joe Manchin keeps being Joe Manchin and there are no consequences, mm -hmm. then what's going to happen is exactly what you laid out, which is like, OK, We'll get something, but $15 minimum wage, you kiss that goodbye. You know, you go down the list, means test it even further. We should means test on top of the means test of the means test. Right. So that by the end, it's, it's like, like, you get 17 cents and a Pop-Tart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, so, yeah. So anyway, there are upsides and there are downsides. Um, they get half of it. But really, I, honestly, I think there needs to be a colossal effort against Joe Manchin and every single Democrat who wants to stonewall and get in the way and, and negotiate down from winning positions, make their life a living hell and force them to bend the knee or else. And this is what's a really, really key point that you're making here, which is that if Joe Biden decided it was an absolute red line for him that $2,000 checks or even $1,400 checks go out to the same group of people that the $600 checks went out to, which was the promise, and that $15 minimum wage was an absolute red line. There is zero doubt in my mind he could get it and get it through budget reconciliation. It could happen relatively quickly. So if you don't end up with those things, that is on Joe Biden as much as it is on Joe Manchin. Manchin. Because mm, exactly what you're saying, like, look, we all know who Jan Joe Manchin is and the type of incentives he responds. He's a cynical actor. He's got this like 1982 mindset that like <laughs> deficit hawking is a way to win in a state like West Virginia where it just nonsense to, I, it's nonsense I mean I, I just have to point out that the state of West Virginia the constituents in West Virginia are to the left of Joe Manchin on these economic issues totally on these the Republican billionaire governor got to Manchin's left and was like we gotta go big here like what do you worry if so we waste a little money who cares people need help right now that's the actual reality of the state of West Virginia so I see the $15 minimum wage fight here as really critical and really super central and to send a lot of messages about how the Biden administration is going to go because, number one, the state of play is unclear, very uncertain whether that's going to get through. Joe Manchin has said he doesn't want $15 minimum wage. There's some shenanigans for the Republicans to try to get it pushed down to the budget reconciliation process altogether and say, like, this is an appropriate thing to do through this process or during a pandemic. Unclear how all of those things shake out. But remember, when Bernie did that horrible, painful live stream with Biden, when he dropped down, conceded to Joe and endorsed Joe, what was the one, $15 the one yeah. issue? Joe was like, do you have any questions for me, Bernie? And Bernie was like, yes, I do. Joe, Joe. do you support a living right. wage? And he's like, yes. I mean, that was like. Why, yes, I do, Bernie. Where am I? Literally, the <laughs> one specific yeah. thing mm -hmm. that was promised to the left is like, I will do $15 minimum wage. So if out of the gate, he's like, well, maybe not. Maybe, maybe next time. I think that's a really clear signal. And we already know that in all of these negotiations, 
he has been only responsive to the right wing position of the Mm -hmm. Democratic Party. He hasn't been responsive at all to the things that Bernie and other progressives have been pushing from student debt cancellation to recurring checks on and on and on. So you don't buy if Manchin is like, no, I'm saying no to 15. I'll do 12 or something. And and Biden doesn't try to get him to bend on that. Your point is don't don't believe Biden that this he actually cared about this. He does he doesn't care as much as Joe Manchin doesn't care. Is that your point effectively? My point yeah, my point mm-hmm. effectively is that he could get it if he wants it. He can get it right. if he wants it. Gotcha. And this is not a controversial issue. Fifteen dollar mm-hmm. minimum wage is a centrist popular position. It has sixty some percent support in the country. It has overwhelming support in the Democratic Party, overwhelming support among independents, and even close to majority support among Republicans. This is not a radical left-wing idea. Mm -hmm. So if he is afraid even to push for that, you know what you're going to get. Yeah. And I do have to say, to your point about Manchin, there's this mythology that exists around Joe Manchin and around all the the right-wing blue dog Democrats. Mm -hmm. And the mythology is... God, you guys don't understand your dumb lefties, mm-hmm. your ideologues. They have to do it. They have to act like this because or else they're going to get wiped out if they don't act like this. So would you rather have a Republican? This is what they have to do. That's the argument. But you touched on the reality there. And the reality is, no, there's nobody in West Virginia, a working person in West Virginia, some coal miner in West Virginia who's like, you know, $11 minimum wage sounds more reasonable than $15 please, minimum please wage. Please keep my wages low, Joe. Or like, or or please, <laughs> please, Joe Manchin, deregulate Wall Street. Work across the aisle with Republicans to do that. <laughs> this is what they actually try to have you believe. The fact of the matter is, you should be, if you're a West Virginia Democrat, as Joe Manchin always says he is, you should be more populist. Now, I get it. On social issues, he could be more conservative, right? Because yeah. West Virginia is culturally conservative. So you're going to be pro-gun. You're going to be anti-abortion. Got it. If those are the areas where it's like, no, 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 on these, he needs to be conservative to have a prayer. I got it. But don't tell me this bullshit about like, he has to be for deregulating Wall Street and he has to be for lower wages. It's like, no, you're the fact of the matter is the way these politicians act, it's mostly because or a large part of it is because they're taking money from corporate interests. So they're representing those corporate interests over the American people. And that's where Joe Manchin is. Joe Manchin is representing the corporate interests over the people of West Virginia, then cloaking it in this idea that I'm just being a good West Virginia Democrat. Right. Yes. And actually, by going conservative on the cultural issues like that's how he sort of like he sort of whitewashes the fact that he panders on cultural issues that's how he continues to get elected in the state of West Virginia and our national political discourse and pundit class can't understand like they literally can't wrap their mind around the fact that you could have people who are both anti-abortion and pro-medicare for all Mm. but in a state like West Virginia you don't just have a few people like that you have a lot that's the state you give give me health care and I'm pro-life. And right. so the, the discourse around like left versus right becomes silly because they don't understand that people can have heterodox views, mm-hmm. some conservative and some economically populist. And that really is the core of West Virginia politics. And Joe Manchin's not stupid. He understands that. He does actually understand the state, but he would rather pander on the cultural issues so that he can continue to carry water for the corporate class yes. mm-hmm. and his donors exactly. and in West Virginia. And it's been the big energy interest in all of those things. So that's where his bread is ultimately buttered. One other thing that's hopeful, though, is there is a new progressive effort from some of AOC's former aides, some of your fellow mm, Justice Trent, Dems, sure. mm-hmm. co-founders to recruit primary challengers to Manchin and to Kirsten Cinema 
over the very like over economic populism and mm-hmm. the very discrete issue of standing in the way of getting rid of the filibuster. And what's interesting about it is, first of all, this is the first time there's really been an effort in like a red state like this mm-hmm. where there's a recognition that actually this person is out of step with their constituents on this issue. And we're going to exploit that that gap. And also, it's just a big difference between the Obama era when there just wasn't that kind of structure, money, ability, understanding to hold people account from a sort of grassroots level rather than like hoping for the best from Joe Biden. Yeah. And what Corbyn is doing well and what the new effort is doing well is it's targeting on the exact issues where Manchin is vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're targeting on the $2,000 checks, if you're targeting on the $15 minimum wage, yeah. these are things that land. You and know? not looking for someone who's uniformly left on every single right. thing. Yes. Because it's true. If you had someone who was left on every single issue, that would be a tough fit for West Virginia. For cultural reasons, exactly. It's the cultural reasons that it's so easy to cloud the economic stuff by focusing on the cultural stuff. And if you have somebody who runs, who focuses on the economic stuff themselves and almost is agnostic on the cultural stuff or somewhat more in alignment with West Virginians on the cultural yeah. stuff, I mean, that's the winning ticket, basically. So, I mean, not to do too abrupt of a transition here, but now we're going to go okay. ahead and and uh, talk to you know somebody who's basically a hero of mine. So I'm honored to welcome to the show American linguist, philosopher, cognitive scientist, and political activist Noam Chomsky. He's here to talk with us about his new book, Chomsky for Activists. Professor Chomsky, thank you so much for joining us. I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Very pleased to be with you. Um, let's start a little bit with the new book, Chomsky for Activists. Why did you want to write this at this point? What did you want people to take from it? Actually, it's a collection of uh, comments about activism over the years, recent years, which my friend Charlie Derber put together uh, to time. It actually is a moment where... Uh, Activism is crucial. The uh, Democratic Party right now is torn between two forces, and uh, the way in which it'll go depends. It'll have a, an enormous impact on what happens in the future. One is the Clintonite, neoliberal, Wall Street oriented, donor oriented uh, Democratic National Committee. The other is the activist forces, progressive forces. Uh, a lot of it under the coming out of the Sanders movement, the Sunrise movement, others. And the party actions will be are kind of poised between these. And if the activist forces refrain and retreat, we'll go back to something like the Obama period. It's pretty much what happened then. Obama had a, an army of young activists who worked very hard to get him into office. He essentially dismissed them, said, don't worry, it's all in good hands, go home. Well, wasn't in good hands. And if that mistake is made again, uh, it'll be highly problematic. Professor, is the left, in your estimation, in a better place or a worse place than, say, during the Vietnam era or during the beginning of the Iraq War era? Well, beginning is the right word. Uh, there was a very 
powerful movement in the first few days when, uh, in fact, right before the Iraq war officially started, there were huge demonstrations everywhere. Uh, but they, uh, after the war began, uh, the activism significantly declined, uh, which had an impact on the way in which the war was fought. Going back to the Vietnam era, uh, you have to bear in mind that it was years before it was possible to develop a significant movement. I happened to be in, in Boston at the time, uh, probably the most liberal city in the, in the country. Uh, we started uh, serious anti-war activism in the early 60s when Kennedy sharply escalated the war. He couldn't talk to five people about it. As late as 1966, we couldn't even have public meetings because they'd be broken up by, uh, disrupted, broken up mostly by students. By 1967, there was a significant movement with the March on the Pentagon and so on. Went on for a couple of years. It's quite significant. By 1971, it was beginning to peter out. Uh, and uh, so, yes, there was a very powerful movement, very brief, and a remarkable moment in history. It's worth recalling that by that time, Vietnam was virtually destroyed. Uh, the leading uh, scholar, Vietnam scholar, military historian, uh, Bernard Fall, wrote in 67 that uh, he didn't know whether. Vietnam could survive as a historical and cultural entity under the beating of the most uh, huge military machine that had ever battered a country of that size. It was pretty serious. And yes, at that time, a strong anti-war movement developed. By now, the movements are much more diffuse. Many more people are involved, much more con uh, persistent. Uh, continued dedicated activism, but it can't go home. If it does, the other forces win. And what do you think the signs are at this point? You said that your fear is that um, essentially like the Obama era, people will just go home and that uh, DNC wing of the Democratic Party, which is very much in control, will continue to dominate. What do you think the signs point to right now? It's mixed. So some of the Biden programs have been the right ones, and I think that's under pressure from the activist forces. He did uh, terminate the uh, atrocious uh, U.S. Con contribution to the uh, destruction of Yemen. That's very important. Uh, he did sign the agree to the long-standing. Russian proposals to renew the New START Treaty. Trump had essentially demolished the arms control regime. This was the last piece standing. It's actually due to expire today. Uh, so there wasn't much time, but Biden did renew it in time. Uh, he's uh, made some pretty good appointments in some areas and labor-related areas. Uh, Janet Yellen's 
the right appointment for Treasury. I don't know what the background for that was. But uh, the climate programs, which are critical, are in limbo right now. Uh, the Sunrise Movement and others didn't manage to get a fairly strong climate program. It was clear that the DNC was resisting. Sometimes it was simply taken off the uh, uh, the web page. Back. Uh, the, now it's we have to see if it'll be enacted. It's not strong enough, but it's at least a start. There's at least a commitment to what has to be done, namely uh, uh, net zero emissions by mid-century, uh, cutting off uh, federal emissions even earlier. But so far, that's on paper. We have to see if it'll be implemented. And here's where the role of the activist movements will be essential. Professor, what do you make of the news uh, that just came out this week that uh, the Biden administration is looking to continue to keep a U.S. presence in Afghanistan? And linked to that, what do you make of the news that they're refusing to get back into the Iran deal unless Iran complies first? It's worse than that. Not only does Iran have to comply first, which is ludicrous since the U.S. pulled out of it, but they're also insisting on the Trump program. Right now, all indications from the Biden administration is they're continuing with Trump's demands that Iran agree to dismantle the joint agreement, JCPOA, and to accept the U.S. demand that it be broadened and expanded to other areas which are not in the JCPOA. Uh, now, remember that when the United States pulled out of the joint agreement under Trump, it was violating the orders of the UN Security Council. When the agreement was signed, the Security Council, in a unanimous declaration, including the United States, ordered all countries to abide by the agreement in accord with the provisions of the United Nations Charter. So the United States stands in violation of Security Council orders and the UN Charter, which happens to be the supreme law of the land under the Constitution, if anyone cares. Uh, and Biden is continuing this position. So this is very bad. I mean, it's nice that he said maybe we'll agree to go back, but all indications are he's simply continuing with the radical Trump violation of Security Council orders. Uh, on Afghanistan, it's not such a simple matter. We should look back at the case of the Russians. When the, when, at the time when the Russians pulled out, there was a kind of arrangement in, in process. In some areas where the Russians had a strong presence, like around Kabul, the situation was really quite good. Uh, women's rights were being protected. The people were, was pretty peaceful. Uh, the probably the most powerful, the most popular figure in uh, modern Afghanistan history, Najibullah, was in power. Had a lot of support. The Russians pulled out precipitously. The U.S. continued 
to support the radical Islamic uh, Mujahideen, who then launched a huge attack, devastated Kabul, uh, caused such atrocities that the population actually welcomed the Taliban when they came in. We should pay attention to that. If the Russians had pulled out, they should have pulled out, of course. It was a terrible aggression, lots of atrocities. But if they had pulled out in a careful manner, the Najibullah regime might well have survived. According to people like Roderick Braithwaite, the British ambassador, a specialist on Afghanistan and on Russia, and a very reasonable commentator, uh, that probably would have been the best outcome for Afghanistan. We should keep that in mind. Pulling out is slogan. You have to ask, how do you implement it in the way which will be of least damage to the Afghan people? It's not a simple matter of following the slogan. Now, I don't know what Biden's advisors have in mind and what planners have in mind, but there are better and worse ways to end the U.S. essentially invasion of Afghanistan. One of the essential ingredient, ingredients of a successful working class uh, politics that you identify in the book is a strong labor movement. And of course, um, labor unions have been under attack for decades now, union busting from the right, sort of amb- anywhere from ambivalence to union busting from Democrats as well. Um, what do you make of the state of the labor movement? What do you think are some of the key strategies to rebuild the strength of labor unions? Well, there are, first of all, very simple things uh, under, especially under Trump, but wasn't very good before. The National Labor Relations Board has simply turned into an anti-labor organization, acted in every imaginable way to undermine organizing. Uh, It goes way back. The Democrats pretty much abandoned the working class by the 70s. The last gasp was the uh, Humphrey Hawkins full employment uh, bill, which did pass. Carter didn't veto it, but he watered it down so that it had no teeth. And since then, Democrats have simply become a party of uh, wealthy professionals, uh, Wall Street oriented, uh, virtually nothing for the working class. Clinton uh, gave them a uh, caused a sharp attack on the working class with uh, the way he devised the NAFTA agreement, uh, which was very essentially an investor rights agreement, which was, which in fact led to uh, extreme uh, anti-labor activities. It basically led to an authorization for employers to, to carry out uh, totally illegal action to break strikes. Uh, this has been studied quite well, in fact. Uh, that still remains. The Democrats, meanwhile, the labor movement has begun to revive in quite interesting ways. It's revived even in, often in non-unionized sector, service sector, like the teacher strike, which began in West Virginia and Arizona. Uh, non-unionized teachers strikes in areas that are 
not at all uh, supportive of labor. They had enormous public support. I happen to live in Arizona, Tucson. There were signs on all over the place supporting the teachers, and the polls are at very high support. And they were not just uh, calling for higher wages, which they certainly deserve, but were calling for a better system of education, more funding for education, uh, uh, not uh, get rid of these overloaded classroom sizes, uh, uh, services for children. They were calling for very good things, had enormous support. And that grew. The nurses, um, unions, and others have been active and organized. And the mainstream organized labor has begun to pick up a bit. GM strike was an example. There are others. I think uh, a labor, and I should say that in the Biden administration, there are some very good people who are labor oriented. Many of them come from the Economic Policy Institute, other strongly uh, pro-labor activist groups. Now, that's a possibility. They may shift the tenor of the party towards actions will, which will support a strong labor movement. And that's essential if we're to get out of the, overcome the very serious crisis that we face. Uh, historically, labor has always been at the forefront of uh, actions that have uh, uh, led to progressive reform, to improving the general welfare. It's consistently been the case. And there are a very good study by a labor historian, Eric Loomis, who has shown, I think, very convincingly that steps forward have been taken when there was a strong, active labor movement and a moderately sympathetic administration. Well, that could be the situation now if activists continue to press to ensure that there's at least a moderately sympathetic administration and that the bars are removed from serious labor organizing. Professor, are the institutional and structural barriers to a third-party effort too difficult to overcome, or do you think the left should try uh, a third-party strategy, or should they just try to take over the Democratic Party? Uh, actually, I think they should be doing both, uh, working to take over the Democratic Party, which is not impossible, and also at the same time laying the basis for a potential third party, uh, which would be dedicated to uh, truly progressive aims. And we should remember that the barrier, that the, uh, what we're, what a progressive part here are aiming for is pretty low. So just take Sanders' main programs, which are commonly dismissed as too radical for Americans, even by left-oriented commentators. His Proposals are completely standard almost everywhere in the world. Uh, universal health care everywhere in Mexico, Brazil, all of Europe. In fact, the one commentator in the Financial Times, Rana Farahar, very good commentator, she uh, commented sort of 
half-jokingly, but only half, that if Sanders was in Germany, uh, he could be running on the Christian Democrat Party program, center-right party, because those are his programs. Universal health care, free higher education. Of course, they have it in Germany, have it in most places, have it in Mexico. Uh, so we have to begin by bringing the United States into the general, mildly, moderately social democratic world, and then move on there. Now, a third party could be pressing for all of this. Uh, the Greens are a possible basis. Uh, Back in the 1990s, Tony Mazaki, who was the head of the uh, oil, uh, chemical, atomic workers union, one of the earliest strong environmentalists, radical, pretty sharp critique of capitalist autocracy. He started a labor party in the 90s. But it had support, could have taken off. I think that could be revived now. Now, that's not in any conflict with trying to take over the Democratic Party. The party can organize, can act, can set up programs, can educate. And I like the Working People's Party in New York until it's strong enough to really take a major part in the election. It can hand over its votes to the more aggressive candidate, whoever it is, in ongoing elections. There are serious barriers in the United States to uh, a third party. The elections are basically owned by the two parties. So when you get a ballot, it says Democrat, Republican, something else, and write in what you like. Uh, that's a reflection of the institutional control of the electoral process, by which shows up in many ways uh, by the two parties. But that can be cracked. And this may not be a bad time for it, because the parties are falling apart. Uh, that's been true for some time, but it's pretty sharp now. We've talked about the Democrats. They're pretty sharply split between these two basic forces. In the case of the Republicans, it's very hard to imagine what's going to happen. Uh, the voting base is in the hands of Trump that's supportive of crazed lunatics like Marjorie Greene. The big guns are the people who own the country who fund the party. After January 6th, they basically told Trump, it's over. We've tolerated your antics so far because you've been lining our pockets, but January 6th was too much and you're out. And you could see what happened with the Republican leadership. The center, senators, Connell, others, started running for the exit. They don't want to offend the big guys. But they couldn't run too far to the exit because the voting base is there, you know, ready to, uh, uh, to, get, to get rid of uh, long, censure, long-standing Republican leaders, if they were so uh, outrageous as to uh, vote to certify the election in Cheney, for example. So they're stuck. They have a voting base that's pretty rapidly supportive of Trump and people like Green. And on the other hand, they have the 
people who own the party who have said enough of this. And they may, it's, it's not clear how they're going to put that together. Yeah. How do you think that we got to this place where such a large chunk of the Republican Party and, frankly, um, mostly the working class part of the Republican Party would be so enthralled with, you know, a complete charlatan and menace like Trump with a, someone who's just completely insane like Marjorie Taylor Greene? How did we end up in this place? Well, it goes back pretty far. But let's come take even recent period. Take the working class. They didn't so much vote for Trump as they stopped voting for Democrats. Hmm. The Democrats lost them more than Trump won them. You can see that from the voting patterns. It's been carefully studied, especially by Tony DiMaggio, a very good radical social scientist. Uh, go back to Obama. The voter, uh, working people voted for Obama. They believed him. They believed the pleasant rhetoric about hope and change, and they pulled back the way activists did. Obama, remember, had control of the uh, Congress for the first two years. He used those years to betray working people and the poor. Very clear. Uh, the most dramatic case was the uh, uh, TARP legislation, the bailout legislation, which had been passed under Bush, but Obama took it over. The Obama, the TARP legislation had two components. One of them was to bail out the criminals, the banks, who had caused housing crisis, which led to the financial crisis. So they had to be bailed out. And that was done, trillions of dollars. There was another part of the legislation. Uh, give help to the victims, the people who lost their homes through foreclosures, who had lost their job, who were destitute, do something for them. That part wasn't implemented. Uh, the uh, Inspector General of the Treasury Department, Neil Borofsky, was very vocal in trying to compel this to be done. Finally wrote a book bitterly condemning the administration for its failure to do this. Working people and others noticed. They noticed other things. By 2010, they'd already given up on the Democrats. 2010, there was a very crucial, first of all, the Democrats lost the lost Congress then. But at Massachusetts, it was particularly interesting. Uh, there was a... a, a Ted Kennedy, the liberal lion, had died, and there was a, a special election to replace him. Uh, the Democrats had a pretty reasonable candidate. The Republicans had a nothing candidate. It wasn't even known he won. That was largely resentment against the sellout. You look at the voting patterns, even union voters barely voted for the Democrats. Hmm. Gave up. Well, that's what happened. But then, then it goes back farther than that. I have to recall that we've been under a neoliberal assault for 40 years. It's had quite an impact. Uh, real wages for male workers were actually lower than they were in 1979. Uh, benefits have declined. Uh, 
there's been an enormous concentration of wealth. Uh, working people in the middle class have been literally robbed of huge amounts of money. Actually, there's a interesting study of it by the Rand Corporation, super respectable corporation, tried to estimate the, what they call the transfer of wealth. We should say robbery. Transfer of wealth from the lower 90% of the population to the very top, which means a fraction of 1%, transfer over the last 40 years. They were estimated $47 trillion. That's not small change. And it's a serious underestimate. doesn't include what happened when Reagan opened the spigots and told the rich and powerful, do whatever you feel like. Also, for example, pre-Reagan, the tax havens were barred, and Treasury, Treasury Department enforced the laws, uh, opened it up. It's tens of trillions of dollars, essentially stolen from the public, uh, many other devices. So people have been under severe attack for 40 years. Uh, democracies declined with a huge concentration of wealth. Uh, wages have flattened stagnated, uh, people, a large part of the population, probably a majority, is living from paycheck to paycheck, while enormous wealth has accumulated in a very few hands. You look carefully, 0.1% of the population, not one, 0.1, have doubled their share of wealth from 10% of total wealth to a spectacular 20%. Now, that has effects on people's lives. It's made them angry, resentful, uh, full of contempt for institutions. All of that's justified. And it means either they get organized to do something about it, which is partially happening, or else they fall prey to demagogues of the Trump variety. A guy who can, very skilled at standing up, waving a banner saying, I love you. Well, with the other hand, he's stabbing them in the back with every single legislative proposal, robbing the working class and the poor. And you get, you have a situation like that, a very, a very uh, dangerous possible reactions, like what we saw on January 6th and others. Yeah. Professor, if Biden refuses to act as a sort of modern day FDR and refuses to implement uh, a social democratic agenda, more or less, do you fear that there could potentially be a more competent version of Trump who takes over and the country will turn far right? It's very possible. And we shouldn't underestimate Trump's competence. He was a political genius. He succeeded in something which is extremely difficult, a legislative program which robbed and attacked the working class and the poor, poured money into the hands of the super rich and the corporate sector on one hand, and maintaining a rabid base of popular support from the people he was shafting on the other hand. That's competence take skill. Uh, he also succeeded very effectively in 
destroying, smashing every possible thing you can see in the international arena that is beneficial and sometimes essential for human survival. His wrecking ball was very impressive. He wrecked the arms control regime, poured money into new and more dangerous weapons, sharply increasing the threat of terminal nuclear war and the other major human issue, the pending environmental catastrophe. He raced toward the abyss, uh, maxima, trying to maximize the use of fossil fuels, including the most destructive, eliminating the regulatory system, which uh, somewhat mitigated the effects, the lethal effects, and we don't have much time as a decade or two to deal with this. His uh, battering ram made a big difference. Uh, World Health Organization, which essential for the health, the survival of huge numbers of people in poor countries all over the world, Africa, Yemen, elsewhere. He tried to destroy that and was quite successful in doing so. Uh, the COVAX uh, consortium, international consortium, almost the entire world, which is in principle at least dedicated to trying to ensure that uh, the poor and needy get the vaccines if they're not monopolized by the rich. Hasn't been very successful, but at least it's trying. So Trump decided to wreck that. In fact, you look across the board, it's amazingly uniform. Anything that can serve human interest, destroy it. Everything that can harm human interest, maximize its impact. Harm the working class and the poor sharply through your legislative programs, and at the same time, maintain a rabid base of support, which is close to half the country. That's pretty impressive. It's not incompetent. It's extremely destructive, devastating, but confident. So will somebody else come along who can pick that up? Maybe. Maybe somebody will come along who doesn't add to it the kind of vulgar, ridiculous antics that finally even alienated the people who be serving uh, with dedicated passion, uh, the super-rich and uh, um, corporate sector. They did finally turn against him. It was very striking on January 6th. They were basically marching orders from the people who effectively owned the country. Chamber of Commerce, uh, National Association of Manufacturers, CEOs of major corporations, they all said straight out, game's over, get out, enough. And as I said, the senators started running for the egg. Yeah, very well said. You know, one of the things that really concerns me that I'd love to get your thoughts on is I saw a poll recently that asked people what they saw as the greatest threat to themselves and their families. And even as we're in the middle of a pandemic, it wasn't a health threat. It wasn't the climate crisis. It wasn't sort of some sort of foreign threat. It was their fellow citizen. That's what they saw as the scariest, greatest threat. That was what a majority of people saw. Um, it seems to me like usually when you have that kind of 
mistrust amongst the population, which has been intentionally sown, where you usually end up as a kind of a police state. Um, do you interpret it that way? What do you make of that trend? And how do you kind of how do you overcome that to have some sort of politics of solidarity? Well, that's a real failure of the uh, left and the activist movement. Uh, take a look at people's uh, what people are really concerned about. Well, understandable that they should be concerned about the pandemic. And here there's a side comment we should bear in mind. Uh, Trump, the fact that Trump was even able to run in this election is an astonishing commentary on the state of the country. Uh, here's a man who had just killed tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans by his incompetence, sadistic actions, and others. And yet he was able to run for office and come pretty close to winning. Tells you something very unpleasant about the country and about the failure to develop a sane, progressive, uh, decent base within the population. Uh, Furthermore, if it hadn't been for his awful handling of the pandemic, it's essentially killing of tens of hundreds of thousands of people, he probably would have won the election. Which shocking comment. Now, that there are two things that should be uppermost in people's minds. One of them is barely mentioned. Take a look at the electoral extravaganza, not a word about it. And that's the growing serious threat of nuclear war. Not my opinion. It's the opinion of the leading specialists on the topic. Who've spent, people who've spent their lives uh, trying to control the nuclear demon. People like William Perry, former Secretary of Defense, uh, doubly terrified by the growing threat and the lack of attention to it. Many others. Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has its second hand on the doomsday clock at 100 seconds to midnight, even after celebrating the elimination of the Trump malignancy, because it's counterbalanced by the growing threat in other areas, nuclear weapons, and the other major one, environmental catastrophe. We have a decade or two literally, to deal with this crisis. If we don't, we reach irreversible tipping points in which everyone's not going to die tomorrow, but we'll essentially be off and running with nothing to do, nothing can be done about it. Uh, the World Meteorological Organization a couple of weeks ago had its annual meeting, gave out its annual report, said we're heading to what they call a hothouse earth, four to five degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. That's way beyond what everyone who knows anything about the topic regards as totally cataclysmic, basically an unlivable world. They add that it's absolutely urgent to start right now eliminating fossil fuels, continue to do it that they're gone by mid-century. If we don't do that, we're off to the hothouse earth. Uh, 
people who follow scientific journals know that regularly there are new reports which are more ominous than the preceding assessments. Uh, that should be at the absolute top of people's concerns. Unfortunately, it's far from it. Among Republicans, it's very lowly. Many just don't believe it. Among Democrats, it's higher, but not where it should be. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done in bringing the population to understand what we're facing. And that's even true in the pandemic. So I said, I live in Arizona. Uh, I, I'm isolated personally. I don't go out, but occasionally take a drive. You see restaurants packed, uh, supermarkets, malls packed, uh, people without masks. It's just uh, asking for the worst to happen when it is happening. Arizona actually uh, recently had the record, world record, for per capita cases. Well, that's what happens when you behave this way. Similarly in Europe, Europe had the pandemic pretty well under control by last May. Then Europeans decided uh, they wanted to have their annual vacation on the beach and so on. So they went out and had their vacations. Spike that's now very ominous. If you can't act responsibly, that's what's going to happen. Countries that where the population has some kind of a collectivist spirit, willing to act responsibly, the governments are taking charge in a sensible way, there they have it under control. I mean, uh, most extreme example, China. Uh, the total death toll from China, total since last January, is roughly the daily toll in the United States. Roughly that. Uh, Vietnam has had practically no case. Australia, New Zealand, under control. Taiwan, I think it's had seven deaths so far. Uh, it is possible to control it, but uh, not if you let it run rampant. Furthermore, the rich country, all of them, are now on a suicidal course because of their lack of internationalist solidarity. So the rich countries are monopolizing vaccines. Now, the worst record of all, I think, is Canada, which has uh, already taken that vaccine way beyond what it can possibly use for years. Well, what happens when the rich monopolize the vaccines? It means it don't, doesn't go to most of the world. Predictions now of the WHO and others are that the poor countries are not going to be get sufficient supply of vaccine for years. Well, what happens during those years? The COVID uh, uh, virus continues to mutate. doesn't stop. New variants come. Might be very dangerous ones. They're going to reach the rich countries. So the rich countries are in a suicide pact. In order to maximize their short-term welfare, they're on a course which is going to, could be extremely destructive. 
Now, there are a few countries where there is a level of international solidarity. Uh, the most advanced one is Cuba, way beyond others. So when there was a severe pandemic in northern Italy at the beginning of the early days of the pandemic, uh, northern Italy has two rich countries right next to it, Austria and Germany, which did have pretty much under control by then. They didn't give any support to northern Italy. Not there's supposed to be a European Union, but that didn't matter. But Cuba sent lots of doctors uh, to help out. China sent um, uh, supplies. Uh, that's happened in many other places. That's the kind of international solidarity that's necessary. Now, China claims that they will provide their vaccine, which apparently is quite effective to poor countries at virtually no cost. But India has said they have a big pharmaceutical industry. They've said they would do the same. Well, we'll see if they do it. If they do, that's international solidarity. And unless the rich countries can rise to that level, not only is the world going to suffer, but they're going to suffer. These are cultural barriers have to be broken through. A lot of work for activist elements, for people who want a better world. Right at home, work at home. Uh, Professor, are there systems that go beyond the successes of social democracy? Um, like, are there any real-world examples from now or the past of, like, a libertarian socialist system or some sort of egalitarian anarchist system uh, that you can point to? Or is it possible that social democracy might be, like, the limit of human potential? You go back to the 17th century, uh, feudalism looked like the limit of human potential. Turned out it wasn't. Uh, human potential is endless. Now, there have been significant moves towards much more far-reaching systems, libertarian socialist systems. They have been crushed by force. So uh, the most advanced one was Spanish anarchist revolution. It was very, very impressive. It was crushed by the combined forces of the communists who led the attack the fascists and the liberal democracy. Now, that doesn't have to happen. Uh, right now, there are sig significant uh, steps in uh, Rojava, the uh, Rojava, the uh, Kurdish areas of Syria. Very difficult situations. Uh, situation right now, recently, Trump administration handed them over to their worst enemy. The Turks were bitterly attacking the Kurdish population. Maybe they'll survive, maybe not. In the United States, there are moves in this direction in many places. There's an enormous growth of cooperatives, uh, worker-owned enterprises, uh, localist efforts in agriculture and so on. These are all steps towards building the elements 
of a more advanced future society within the present one. That incidentally is the traditional anarchist doctrine. Bakunin and others try to build the germs of a future society within the present one, get them to be strong enough, effective enough, so that they can take over. That's the way changes take place. Uh, Some of them are very far-reaching. So uh, the Mondragon uh, conglomerate in the Basque country in Spain, which goes back about 60 60 years, huge conglomerate, worker-owned, to a significant extent, not sufficiently worker-managed, uh, industry, uh, finance, banks, uh, housing, uh, 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 commerce, uh, all under their own control. That's about the only part of the Spanish industrial system that weathered the recent uh, financial crisis. Uh, stable. It's making, there are connections being explored with the uh, Steelworkers Union in the United States to try to duplicate some of these achievements here. Uh, uh, the re- uh, reviving labor movement can take a significant part in this. And there are, apart from what I mentioned before, there are other kinds of revival. My co-author Robert Pollan, fine economist, who's done very powerful, important work on the uh, um, on the on the climate crisis has been working with unions to try to become engaged in the style that the Mazaki union was in the early years. Remember that the it's the uh, uh, oil, chemical, and atomic workers union under Tony Mazaki, which were the early some of the earliest environmentalists. Back in the early 70s, they were the ones pressing for environmental action. You can understand why. They're right in the path of the worst direct effects of the use of fossil fuels, pollution, and destruction. Uh, so that can be revived. And that could be part of a broader movement. I mean, I, you can't find any at any time in history. You've never been able to find a model society, anything like it. You can find ways of moving towards better society. And that has been achieved. We're a better society in many ways than we were earlier in my own lifetime, in the 1960s and 1930s. Okay? The result of significant activist movements is we shouldn't overlook the fact that there's been a lot of progress. Many things that are not even imaginable today were perfectly normal in the 60s. We should go back and think about that. In the 1960s, there was no recognition whatsoever of the genocidal destruction of the Native American population. Nothing. Uh, the, even scholarship was saying uh, when the settler in the Western uh, uh, colonists came, there was just uh, maybe a bunch of maybe a million hunter, hunter-gatherers wandering around, nothing much. 
It was broken through largely because of 60s activism out to the academic world finally seeped back in uh, with regard to take Martin Luther King at the peak of his popularity. It was nowhere near the popularity of the Black Lives Movement, which is an amazing and important fact. After the Floyd murder, the largest social movement in American history quickly, spontaneously developed. Two-thirds of the population supported it. Very big propaganda offensive has cut that back somewhat. But nevertheless, it shows that a background of activism and organizing has led to a different level of consciousness. Things that were by things that were federal law in the 1960s are unimaginable today. 1960s by federal law, uh, federally subsidized housing had to be segregated, meant black cut out. I mean, the U.S. in the 60s had anti-miscegenation laws, which were so extreme that the Nazis wouldn't accept them. All that's lots of progress. Not, not by magic, by many years of extended activist work, and it's moving towards what you were talking about, elements of a future society that's much more advanced than the moderate social democracy that exists in many parts of the world, and uh, the Sanders movement is striving toward. And Professor, is that optimism? Is that what keeps you going? I mean, one of the things that I was curious about is you've got a few years under your belt at this point. What makes you keep going? What makes you keep putting out books? What makes you keep doing interviews with people like us? What makes you keep pushing forward? Well, there are a number of reasons. Uh, one reason is what I just mentioned. Uh, there are very large numbers of people, mostly young, active, energetic, courageous, working hard to bring about a better world. Uh, it's hard to overlook Greta Thunberg's comment when she was talking at the Davos meetings with the rich and powerful, gave a very powerful keynote address, ended it by saying to the assembled rich and powerful, you have betrayed us. That's true. We have betrayed them. We've betrayed the younger generation. The one reason to keep going is not to betray them. Uh, and there is hope. There are opportunities. Uh, another reason is if we give up on this, we're essentially telling the human species, nice knowing you, it's over another reason for continuing. Uh, and basically what it comes down to is we just don't have any choice. You just have the options of forging ahead, picking the opportunities that exist, maybe you make a better world, or saying, okay, we'll betray you, and it's all over. That's not much of a choice. Professor, before I ask my final question, I just want to say uh, thank you, because you've been 
probably the single biggest intellectual influence on my life. And so, you know, you've had, you've played a big role in my life, whether or not you know it. And I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who are in the exact same uh, situation that I'm in. So with that being said, it's a very open-ended question I want to ask you. What do you want your legacy to be? What do you want to be most known for? I honestly don't care. I would like. <laughs> See, this is why I love them, guys. <laughs> Doesn't have anything to do with personalities. The legacy that I would like to see is that the values I hold high in professional work, activist work, that those values be pursued by people in the best way that they will figure out how to do better than I can think of and will lead to a much better world for all of us. Professor, we can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We're so grateful. Thank you. It was nice to be with you. All right. Um, covered a lot of ground there with Professor Chomsky. How do you feel? Personally, you were nervous going in. This is one of the people that you were most excited mm-hmm. to speak with. What yeah. did you think? Well, first of all, I thought it was awesome. Um, I really enjoyed it. Interestingly, I kind of knew how to act in a sense, even though I was nervous because I share a very similar quality to him. We're like, he's just no nonsense. He's like, I'm here for an interview. You Let's really do the interview. You're comparing yourself to Noam Chomsky. Right? Well, no, no, no. Just, just <laughs> temperamentally, not intelligence-wise, in no other way, but temperamentally. I felt really comfortable because I feel like we're basically just not We're best level. friends. <laughs> he's going to want to hang out with me, obviously. Um, no, he was like, I'm here for the interview. Like, let's do the interview type stuff. And I yeah. respect that. It's like, yeah, that is why you're here. So let's do it. In other words, he, you could skip over. Just like with Bernie, how he's like, I don't do niceties. I won't call you on your birthday. Like, that's, <laughs> that's Noam, too. Very, Noam, different vi- very similar vibe. There, yeah, yeah, Noam's like, yeah, I'm here to do the. Go ahead. Let's talk about whatever. But like, we're not going to pretend like I, I give a shit about your nephew. You know that what I mean? That actually was my maybe my favorite answer when you were like, what do you want your legacy to be? And he was like, I don't care. <laughs> that was <laughs> so perfect. gangster as fuck. Like, because I wasn't even expecting that answer. Like, I was expecting him to be, yeah, I've done some stuff in linguistics, but really, I think the political activism might be a little more important in the broader scheme of things. But he was like, who cares? I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Like, I'm just trying to make the world a little bit better. And I'm maybe I'm succeeding. Maybe I'm failing. But I just hope other people try to make the world better, too, bitch. What a dumb question. <laughs> like, that's that's how he approached it, right? It was kind of perfect. Yeah. It was a very revealing moment. Yeah. Somebody once said, there's this great quote, again, I think from a YouTube commenter. They said, Noam Chomsky is the only person that makes monotone sound good. It's so true. Because everybody else, if they're talking like this for like 20 minute blocks at a time, you're like. Yeah. But with Noam, I'm like. That's a good point, bro. I mean, (laughs) it's just, it is actually incredible um, how unbelievably informed and sharp and with it he is more than biden so insightful so like on it minute to minute with the latest of what's going on inciting studies from spain and whatever i mean it really is quite remarkable and i think one of the benefits that you really get when you speak to someone who has such longevity is he does have that big picture and the arc and sweep of history in mind so It actually was really great to hear him reflect on, like, don't forget that there has been progress, Mm -hmm, right? Like, mm -hmm. it can feel very intractable. The 
problems we're facing can feel insurmountable. It can feel like we're stuck with this like disastrous neoliberal order. But don't forget that over the course of my lifetime, massive progress actually has occurred, which tells you that it's possible, which tells you you can't accept the framing of maybe this is just the best that we can do because people in past eras thought that too and were completely wildly wrong. That's right. And that's why I actually think that was his most substantive answer to any of my questions was that one when I said, well, what if the limit of human potential is like social democracy and we can't really go any further just because we're so flawed as humans, like maybe that's the end of it. And he snapped, answered back like, yeah, people thought that about feudalism back in, you know, whenever. And then when I was like, what are examples of like going beyond that and it's succeeding? He had like three or four examples where he was like, they did this, this worked really well. The only, you know, failure of like, whatever, the Basque region in Spain and and elsewhere, like, uh, it was kind of destroyed from the outside. So maybe that's a little hint of, like, you need to be, if you're some sort of leftist, maybe, I should have asked him this question, actually, maybe he's more in favor of, you know, gun rights than, than other lefties, you know, because it seems to me like if the idea is that these amazing projects that have, like, radical egalitarian values and they take off and they do well, and if it's crushed from the outside, wouldn't it stand to reason that, like, well, maybe the best way to protect it is we actually have to protect ourselves physically? Yeah. You know what I mean? Is that crazy for me to say that or what? Do you think that the gun issue weighs in that or am I... I, I don't. Wrong? I don't know. You don't know. I, I don't. Have I don't enough, want to put words in his yeah, mouth. I don't have enough information but there. That's my interpretation of what he was saying. Is mm-hmm. that if you do have these examples of these leftist projects that were working really well and then were crushed from the outside, it's like okay. Well, then the solution would be have it not get crushed from the outside. Right. However, we can. Right. You know. Yeah. Usually, though, you're going to be outgunned if violence is your. You know, if like protecting yourself through violent means is the goal. Usually, you're going to be completely outgunned and completely outmatched by. You when know, the imperialist power is on the other side, absolutely. Yeah, hundred percent. You know. But the other thing I thought that was really, really fascinating was he just say, stated this really clearly that Trump didn't so much win as the Democrats lost mm, working yeah. class voters, and he had a very specific trajectory in mind of of how that happened, which I don't think will be a surprise, certainly not a surprise to either one of us or, you know, those who are listening or watching this show, which is basically, you know, a lot of people, a lot of working class people, including white working class people voted for Obama and really thought it was going to mean something and mean that they had someone who was of the people and by the people and for the people and going to be on their side. And then in the financial collapse, when you had it so clear that the Mm -hmm. banks got theirs and everyone else got fucked that was the beginning of the break i shouldn't even say the beginning of the break that was the break because the beginning of the break had happened years earlier with clinton and the dlc and the abandoning of the working class by the democratic party but that that was a definitive moment and the politics including what we saw with gamestop and a lot of the energy and anger and resentment and roiling sort of populist energy comes directly out of that moment and i think that's a really important piece of context to always keep in mind i definitely agree with that the other thing he said in regards to trump that i thought was interesting because it's a thought i've been toying with to one extent or another is this idea that don't call him incompetent he's actually not incompetent Mm. he's actually hyper competent and the way in which he's hyper competent is that he does he walked that tightrope of like i'm gonna give the establishment and the elites and the moneyed interests everything they want while still somehow maintaining this really vicious, hardcore base of support that genuinely has a lot of working class people in it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So the fact that he was able to do that, Chomsky says that's incredibly um, competent. And then the other thing that kept popping up in my mind as he was talking is like, 
Yeah, that 2017 tax cut bill that they got through where 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. Like, yeah, that's hyper-competence in terms of, it's competence for the exact wrong agenda, but it's competence. And so when you look at that, when you look at how, you know, for example, they destroyed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and various regulatory agencies, he actually really made all these horrendous goals of, of the wealthy he brought them to fruition, mm-hmm. and he did it while also being an asshole on Twitter, yeah. which, funny enough, kept that base of more working-class support for cultural reasons. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, that's exactly right. And not only did he keep that base of support, he expanded it. He did. And that's aided right. to even, you know, Latino and black working-class margins, which is not only astonishing, you know, on his part, but it's also speaks to just an utter catastrophic failure on the part of the Democratic Party. Like, they should be absolutely ashamed of Mm -hmm. that fact. Something tells me that they're barely even thinking about it. And I just see, you know, we talked a little bit about the relief bill and some of the economic programs, some of the foreign policy moves of the Biden administration. One of the things I find really, really depressing right now about the direction of the Democratic Party is they're basically playing into that culture war dynamic, Mm. which continues the movement of affluent suburbanites in the professional class into the Democratic Party and the bleeding of the working class into the Republican Party. So they've decided after winning two massive upset victories in the state of Georgia on the issue, on this populist economic issue of $2,000 checks, they have decided they are building their whole midterm strategy around QAnon. QAnon and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And painting Mm -hmm. the Republican Party as the party of QAnon. Now, the Republican Party has given them all the talking points you could possibly need in that regard. Mm -hmm. It's a completely fair hit. I'm not saying it's unfair. But why are you going to focus on, why not actually deliver the $2,000 checks and do a good job with the vaccines and get people health care and run on that affirmative agenda? But it's so easy mm-hmm. to just, you know, accurately paint them as the bad guys and in bed with these crazy kooks and unwilling to call them out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that leads to fighting everything on the grounds of the culture war and keeps, you know, the division in the working class as it has been. When your allegiance is to corporate donors, then the Democrats have their own tightrope that they're walking, which we touched on Trump having his own tightrope that he has to walk. The Democrats had to walk this tightrope of serving their corporate donors while also somehow trying to appeal to a Democratic base. And they think they came to the same conclusion of like, okay, well, then I'll just lean into culture war stuff. And so you lean into... We're the party of, they literally said this, we're the party of college-educated people, and they're the party of QAnon. You could have the college-educated ones, or you can have the QAnon ones. (laughs) They're so stupid. (laughs) I love the smell of my own gas. Yes. (laughs) And that's where we are. And so, like you said, it's so cheap and it's so easy. And I get it. Like, I get the instinct to want to be like, ha-ha, they're dumb, we're smart. Right. But like, yeah, but you're also like, colossally smug pricks and like nobody wants to (laughs) hang out with you yeah like it's just it it, like you said it's leaning into the culture war angle of it when it's like we just take the fucking culture war off the table and let's have a discussion about actual policy well it's like they always want to run on civility and decorum Mm -hmm. rather than actual policy substance why civility and decorum is easy 
Doesn't, yeah, you don't you're always going to gonna be Trump on that one, right? You're always yeah. going to be Trump. You know, it doesn't threaten any powerful interest. Mm-hmm. It's very, you know, this is like the obsession. There's like a cult-like obsession in the Beltway media about like civility and decorum. Mm-hmm. It's the Lincoln Project direction of the party where as long as we strip out any like commitment to any ideological issues, this is very easy ground. This threatens absolutely no one. It makes it easy for us to paint the other side, not just the leaders, but the entire other side mm-hmm. as like ignorant dangerous rubes and that's the ground that they apparently want to fight on which again like the thing that kind of sucks about it is it will work it will continue that movement of affluent suburbanites into the party you will continue to get destroyed in ohio but arizona will become more and more blue georgia will become more and more blue you'll pick up these states in your column and then you'll wonder why a party that is so utterly bankrupt and dreadful and insane as the republicans have become are still competitive and they will still be competitive and they could very easily you know pick up seats in the next couple of elections and potentially win back the presidency next time around you know I don't know how well it'll work, to be honest with you. I feel like there's a decent chance, just like they stumbled across the right way to run in Georgia. Mm. Like, uh, 2002. Oh, yeah, yeah, $2,000 checks. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that. Yeah, like, Trump gave it to him, actually. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but all you need is, like, just a hint of that populism, and everybody in the country immediately is like, oh, thank God, and then they vote for you, right? Yeah. So it's like, yes, they could have the culture war off all day long, but then at the end of the day, at that last minute, whoever throws out that actual economic appeal, that working class appeal, I think they end up winning. And so it could, the Republicans could do it, the Democrats could do it. Fact of the matter is, you and I both know that when the Republicans run on it, they're so beyond full of shit, it's unbelievable. Right. And the Democrats are like half full of shit on it as well. Right, right, right. So, oh, and the other point I wanted to make real quick is um, Mm -hmm. when Noam Chomsky said, because this is something that I've thought for a while, and I, I think you're in the same boat, but yeah, COVID is why Biden won. Yeah. That, like, without that, yeah, Trump probably would have won. Which is pathetic. Insane Donald and, Trump. <laughs> and not and not to mention, like, he barely, even, if, even, like, with things as bad as they were and Trump killing hundreds of thousands of Americans with his failures in the coronavirus crisis, Biden barely squeaks by. And, yes, I know he won the popular vote by a lot of votes and all that stuff. But in the Electoral College and Still the key swing states, it's like right. 65,000 votes go a different way. And Trump gets reelected. If Trump had just— Is it that small, the margin? It was 65,000? Yeah, in those key— <gasps> like, it's, I thought it, it was, was a little close. more than, than 2016. It was very— cl- in those, yes. And so, and even if like, like, for example, in the state of Georgia, if Trump had just done one thing different, which is encourage people to vote by mail, he probably would have won Georgia. Oh. And maybe some other, you know, like it, it was that tight. Oh. And so that is terrifying. I guess it does speak to a level of sort of like manic genius or competence on the part of Trump, but it just as much, maybe even more so, speaks to the utter failure of the Democratic Party to even like convincingly defeat such a just manifestly horrific person. I will say I did. I genuinely didn't know that the margin for 2020 was about the same as the margin from 2016 in the key states. Yeah, I was under the impression that it was at least like double or triple that margin. So I'm floored at that fact because, yeah, now you get this fake aura of invincibility of like, 
Democrats we did have it. everything, yeah. But hold on, wait a second. When you looked at the polls, if you just, and, and I know because the prediction I made was based off of the actual polls, if you just looked at the final polls the day of the election and and said, what if this is what it's actually going to be? It would have been like Biden 360 electoral votes. Mm-hmm. And he ended up getting what, 306? So it's like, even in the electoral college, it's like, this is a massive underperformance, yeah. you know, and that we have to try to figure out why that is. Instead of doing that, the opposite lesson is being applied where it's like, obviously, Trump was an aberration of history. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not mm-hmm. the culmination of, you know, years and years of neoliberal failure. He's the aberration. And so now we're back to normal. And so that's the thing is if we actually do just go back to normal. I don't know what's going to happen moving forward, but that's why I asked Professor Chomsky, like, do you fear a more competent Trump effectively? Yeah. If we, if Biden doesn't act as a new FDR and really change things when it comes to the distribution of wealth in this country and mm-hmm. when it comes to jobs, I don't know what's going to happen, but like it can get bad. I wouldn't be surprised if it gets bad, bad. Look, it seems very clear to me, and I mentioned this poll that I think we both talked about on our shows, yes. that a majority of Americans see their fellow citizen as the greatest mm-hmm. threat to them. And at the same time, you see, you know, a lot of talk from Democrats about a new domestic terror law, new domestic surveillance. You've got military force in D.C., like basically mm-hmm. indefinitely at this point. And so there's basically two directions that you can go in. You can either go in that like basically more of a police state and feeling like they need the government and the police and actual sort of pseudo-fascism to protect them from their neighbors. Or you can take the big leap and actually trust people to have power and self-govern and have a true movement towards, I mean, that was the core of Bernie Sanders' promise was like actual democratizing of power to the working class, devolving a power from elites to the working class. That's a very scary thing for elites because you don't know what you're going to get because you don't control everything anymore. You don't get to play this fake game of making people feel like they have a say and feel like they have a voice. But the minute they try to, you know, buy GameStop, it's like, no, I don't think you do actually have control and have that voice. But I, there's no other path. Those are the two directions. Mm-hmm. And the thing that troubles me the most is today we're stepping down that path of like increasing militarization, increasing police state measures. And there are very few people who are sort of observing that slide. So you don't see um, the possibility of basically just a continuation of 20 or 30 more years of the status quo. You think that's basically impossible, that it's going to go either hard in the authoritarian direction or maybe more in a social democratic direction? I don't really believe that there is such a thing as status quo in that. I think things are always getting better or getting worse. Mm -hmm. I don't think there is. I mean, look, this is an incredibly complex society. Things aren't the same now as they were 10 years ago. So even this idea that there is a status quo that we're living in and that could continue, I think is, is just not true. In my view... Things are always improving a little bit or they're getting a little worse or sometimes they improve a lot in a short span. Sometimes they get a lot worse in a short span. But I don't really believe in stasis. So if if we continue in generally the direction that we are headed right now for the next decade or two decades or three decades, I think it ends in complete disaster. Yeah, I mean, I want to I want to provide the counter argument to that, but I, I'm having a hard time doing that. I mean, I feel like the best case scenario is. Yeah, maybe what Chomsky Chomsky's theory of change is correct in that you get enough popular pressure from grassroots activists that are that's exerted on the Biden administration that you basically bully his ass into doing a number of decent things. Yeah. But I think the thing that you and I are concerned about is that even under a best case scenario of that, you're still not getting Medicare for all. 
Still not getting a Green New Deal. Still not getting recurring monthly checks in form of a UBI. Yeah. Like, maybe we'll get half measures of those things in various forms, but, like, now ain't the time for half measures. Well, the things that would have been adequate, let's say, at the beginning of the Obama administration are woefully inadequate now. Because we've had—we haven't been getting, like, slowly, incrementally worse, especially over this past year. It's been a giant leap backwards, you know, with— Four times more job loss— now than in the Great Recession. Huge, Four times. Massive robbery by the plutocrat class. Forty-seven trillion since and I when he was given that number, I was yeah. holding myself back from giving more specifics. Because yeah. that study landed with me more than maybe any other study I've ever read. But Rand Corporation, they said forty-seven trillion dollars from the bottom ninety percent to the top one percent. And that's the equivalent of one thousand one hundred and forty-four dollars every month to every American in the bottom 90%. That's how much they took from you. In other words, if you just kept the wealth distribution the same from 1974 mm-hmm. till today, that's how much more money everybody would have. Yeah. But the system is so insanely rigged that they effectively stole all that money from the bottom 90%. Yeah, and so that, what did you say, $1,144 yeah, per so, month. And, and they want to make it all better by maybe giving you one $1,400 check. That's going to be mean. We can't have high-income earners. God forbid that Over 50K. someone <laughs> have something in the savings account, right? So they're trying to pair even that back and say that this is sufficient. And, you know, on the political realm, I think if... The vaccines go out and things get a little more normalcy around them. The economy is coming back and people get a little bit of relief. I think in the short term, politically, that will be sufficient. But in the long term, because you're not in a place where incremental is sufficient anymore, I think it ends up being a disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. So, um, well, that was fun. That was and amazing. I'm glad that you had the chance to talk to him. Thank you, Crystal Ball. Without you... <laughs> it wouldn't have no seriously it wouldn't have happened that, it wouldn't it. no it wouldn't have happened and i i'm not going to tell the story behind the scenes but i know as a matter of fact i wouldn't ever be able to talk to noam chomsky if it wasn't for you crystal so i want to thank I you very much still don't buy that but you're welcome i don't care if you don't buy it it's true i know it's true most importantly hope you guys enjoyed it and um thanks for hanging out with us guys love you guys